As we continue in worship now, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once more. The Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 15 uh, this morning, Luke 15. We arrive at uh, the very famous set of a triplet of parables uh, that are quite familiar to many of us, but uh, that convey a a powerful truth. Luke 15, and this is all 32 verses. Um, and so I'll read the, the text within the sermon, Luke 15. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And so we pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Show us more of Christ. Help us to grow in our understanding of your love in him. And Lord, that you would help us to each understand our own need to recognize our sinfulness and our own need to recognize the need to our, uh, the constant need to repent and turn in faith to you. Thank you, God, for revealing to us your character in these words, in these parables. We pray that you be glorified. May you be magnified through the proclamation of your word. Speak, O Lord, through this servant, your servant. Speak to your people through the power of your spirit at work in each of our hearts and minds. Cause us to grow in our love for you and our love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus was often criticized for the kind of company that he kept. Of all Jesus' 12 disciples, especially those, those first 12, perhaps the most despised of that company was the disciple known as Levi, who would also be known as Matthew. But remember, Levi was a, a tax collector, an Israelite who had sowed out his people to serve Gentile rulers. Politically, he was considered a traitor. Socially, an outcast. Spiritually, unclean and wicked and forbidden to participate in the synagogue. Yet when Jesus called Levi to follow him, Levi left everything behind and followed Jesus. Soon after, uh, as we read in, in, in Luke, Jesus, uh, Levi threw a big reception for Jesus so that all of uh, Levi's fellow tax collector friends could come and meet this Jesus who offers forgiveness of sins to people like him. And when he did so, immediately the Pharisees and scribes began to criticize Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. And in response, we had studied, recall, in Luke 5, 31 and 32, these words, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just as physicians spend most of their time with the sick, so similarly, the great physician of our souls spent most of his time with those who were spiritually sick. Throughout his ministry, the Pharisees and scribes would continue to criticize Jesus for this very thing. This, these, uh, the self-righteous religious leaders had forgotten that their God was a God who seeks and saves the lost. And sometimes, 
in our days, and particularly in our very, in our very, um, kind of, uh, in our us versus them social media world, we for, can forget this truth as well. We forget that the ones that we criticize or we disagree with, they need Jesus. And they are, and God sent his son to die for them. We forget sometimes that instead of seeking to, to put down others or criticize others, that we ought to seek and save the lost as Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This passage reminds us that God, our God, delights in sinners who repent and turn to him. And we who follow Jesus must have a similar delight and desire. Today's passage serves to basically once again refine in our priorities and our pursuits in life. It teaches us how to be the kind of disciples that Jesus wants us to be. Disciple makers who seek and save the lost. This passage neatly divides, uh, as we've probably, if you're familiar with it, into three parables. Each parable conveys essentially the same truth that God desires and delights to save sinners. And three parables, and, and so we, as an outline, we'll look at these three parables that help us to see God's joy over sinners who repent. Three parables that should reveal that God seeks and saves the lost. Let's take a look at these three parables. <clears throat> and the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep in verses 1 to 7. And we come across the setting in verses 1 through 3. Now all the text collectors and the sinners were coming near, to, near <clears throat> him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying... Back in chapter 14, verse 25, we had learned that large crowds were going after and following along with Jesus. Now we learned that among these crowds weren't just the average people, but these were, there were even tax collectors and sinners in this crowd. They had, they were coming near to him to, to listen to his words, to hear him. <clears throat> we already learned a little about tax collectors and sinners earlier. But tax collectors were considered as sinners, those who basically did not follow God's law, those who were, had no relationship with God. These were people who were outside the, the community of, Israel, of Israelite uh, worship. They were not allowed in the synagogues. And so, since these people were, these, scribe, these tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus, the religious leaders were criticizing Jesus for his close association with these sinners. Notice they don't even refer to Jesus by name. They don't even talk to him privately. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They disdainfully speak of him. Jesus is accused of welcoming and extending hospitality to sinners. He eats with them. He drinks with them. He shares the same table with them. And in so doing, he was perceived as affirming their immoral practices. And certainly they were immoral people. Make no mistake. These tax collectors and sinners were not nice and good people. But nevertheless, Jesus never <clears throat> could not affirm their immoral practices. Jesus did not come to affirm them in their sin. He came to save them from their sin. That's a very important point for even us as we inter interact with, uh, with the world out there. That we would not affirm people in their sin, but we would seek to save them from their sin. <coughs> So in answer, Jesus tells this first parable, 
the parable in verses 4 to 6. <clears throat> and he, he says this, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. The parable is presented really as one rhetorical question. Verses 4 to 6 is really one long question. But it's a rhetorical question that expects everyone to answer uh, with, with an agreement. Jesus asked his listeners to put themselves in the, in the shoes of a shepherd. This shepherd has a modest flock of about a hundred sheep. And usually at the end of the day or near the end of the day, the shepherd would count his flock before bringing them back into, uh, into uh, a, a, a fence area for protection at night. But one day as he counts, he counts only 99. He has 100, he counts 99, there's one missing. Where could the lost one be, he may wonder. What could have happened? Was it hurt? Was it stolen? Was it eaten by predators? Would it simply just get lost by itself? And the shepherd, we learn in this parable, values the lost sheep so much that he leaves the 99, he doesn't even put them away. Immediately he leaves them in there in the open pasture and he goes to seek this lost sheep. His search is rewarded. He's successful. He finds it after some searching. And so the shepherd quickly lays the sheep on his shoulder. Maybe it's hurt, but this is the quickest way to carry it back <clears throat> to the flock. And as he's carrying on his shoulder, he's rejoicing. This key word rejoicing we'll see throughout this uh, chapter. He carries the lost sheep back to the flock. He is delighted to find the lost sheep. And when he gets home, he's so excited, he's so excited, happy that he calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with them. You know, <clears throat> and, and though not explicitly stated, implicit in this invitation, when he calls his friends and neighbors, especially in this culture, it is a call to celebration. It's a call that would involve food and drink. He's going to have a little bit, he's going to have at least bare minimum snacks and drinks. There's a party that is going to take place. The reason is because that he has found the sheep that was lost. Jesus then explains the significance of this parable in verse 7, which where we find the principle stated really. Verse 7, he says this. Jesus then says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus makes the point <clears throat> that like the shepherd who rejoices over finding his lost sheep, so also God and his angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. <clears throat> the shepherd and his neighbors here are compared to heaven where God and his angels dwell. The lost sheep is symbolic of the lost sinner. Being found is equated with repentance from sin. We see then that there is divine joy in the repentance of one sinner. There is more joy, in fact, than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The question is, who are these 99 righteous? Now, these are not... <clears throat> Jesus is not saying that there are actually uh, 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Instead, it refers to those who think they're righteous. They, they are self-righteous, and they think that they don't need to repent. 
You recall back to what we were, when we read Luke 5, 31 and 32. These are those who think that they are well, who don't need a physician. They think that they're good with God without the Savior. But the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is none righteous, not even one. Not obvious at this point, but the 99 righteous here are referenced to the Pharisees and scribes themselves. They are the ones who think they're righteous and think that they don't need a Savior. Why does Jesus receive and eat with sinners? Because God's desire and delight is in the repentance of sinners. God desires that you and I repent of our sins. And God is patient towards all mankind that we might have time to repent before it is too late. Jesus continues to convey the same truth of the, God's desire to light in the repentant sinners in the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. The image changes, but the structure of the parable is practically the same as the first. The parable is told in verses 8 through 9. Again, a question. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Jesus again uses a rhetorical question that expects all to agree with him. In this case, the picture changes to that of a poor woman who has ten silver coins. A silver coin was known as a drachma, but it is equivalent to something else, another a coin called a denarius, one day's wage. It is likely for this woman that these ten coins represented her life savings at that point. Somehow, she loses one of these ten coins. In contrast, to the first parable, the loss here is greater in proportion. Instead of one out of a hundred, now it is one out of ten. There's a progression of increasing urgency to find that which is lost. We see it in the greater detail given to the woman's search. She has to light a lamp because in those days she, she's poor, a poor woman, so her house is probably a windowless four-wall room with just a door. So it's dark inside. She has to light a lamp. And most likely the floor is just a dirt floor. And so a coin could easily get covered by dirt. So she has to use a broom to sweep to make sure that she kind of uncovers any dirt, loose dirt, and to see if the, where the coin might be hidden under some dirt. And all the while she is searching carefully, diligently, until she finds it. And just like the previous parable, her search is also successful. Similarly, she also calls together her friends and neighbors to rejoice and celebrate. And again, the invitation implies a celebration involving food and drink. And why? Because she found her coin, which was lost. Jesus, again, also explains the significance of this parable in the next verse, in verse 10. The principle, Jesus says, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The statement is almost identical to verse 7. Instead of heaven, Jesus speaks of the presence of the angels of God. But essentially, it's the same meaning. The general principle is the same. There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. 
The slight change from verse 7 is that instead of saying there will be joy, here he says there is joy. It's not joy, just joy in the future, but joy in the present, right here and now. This past week, I, I heard news from my, from my cousin, uh, a relative, about the salvation of his, two of his family members. And I was just so amazed because as I was studying this past, I realized there is, there is so much joy in heaven when there's one sinner who repents. Now there are two sinners who repent. There's joy right now when a sinner repents. And perhaps there's a sinner out there right now who has not yet turned to Christ, but God's calling you. Know that God will delight in seeing you come to repentance and faith in Him. In the remainder of the chapter, as we see these, these two parables, they really teach, simply teach us the same thing. There's joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. But the remainder of the chapter, Jesus tells one more parable. It conveys the same main point. But there's much more detail in this parable compared to the first two. It's, it's greater detail, but it's even more pointed in its answer to the religious leaders. They had been critical of him for eating and drinking, receiving sinners. And this parable really it brings his answer to a culmination. And this is the parable that is known as the parable of the lost son, verses 11 to 32. This parable is also known as the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son that we find here in verses 11 to 24. In Jesus' story, this parable focuses first on the prodigal son in verses 11 through 24. And much of the details are focused on him, in fact. But we see there's several details about this prodigal son. First of all, we see that he's a, he's, that he is, a, that he's caught, we see his rebellion, his sin against his father. And we read in verse 11, see this in verse 11 to 13. And he said, a man, Jesus that said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Jesus tells a parable of a man with two sons. Even though we think of the, it's a parable of the, of the prodigal son, but really this story is about the father. He's the primary uh, person. But this younger son that, uh, that is, we are introduced to is one who brazenly approaches his father and asks for his share of the inheritance while the father is still living. In Jewish culture, as the younger, uh, as the, as the younger son, he was entitled to one third of the father's uh, estate. The older son w- receives a double portion according to the law. And yet, despite as selfish and callous as this request from the son is, the father nevertheless graciously acquiesces. He divides it and he gives it to him. 
And once he divides it soon after, the son just simply takes everything and he does and he does like, oh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna try to make it my way and in the next part, in the next part of town. He leaves his family completely behind and goes far away to a distant country. And while abroad, the son squanders his whole inheritance, living a hedonistic, self-indulgent lifestyle with no thought to the future. This is a picture of sin. There's a picture of when we choose to go our own ways. We, we essentially are like the sun. We, we leave out God. We leave him behind. We live to please ourselves, doing whatever we want with no thought of the future ramifications. But there is always a ramification and consequence for our sin. As we see in verse 14, 16, the, re- the repercussion of sin for this young man. Verse 14 to 16. Now when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. When a severe famine strikes the land, this this already broke (laughs) prodigal son becomes impoverished. He becomes desperate. So he's so desperate, he has to now get a job. <laughs> he ends up working for a Gentile, of all things, feeding pigs. This, for the Jewish person, meant Jewish mind, was, was a humiliating, shameful kind of job, for pigs were considered unclean animals. Every day, as he would go out to his work, he would become ceremonially unclean. But even on top of all that, even as he works a job, the, the working with unclean animals, on top of it all, he's still desperately poor. He's always hungry. He, and even as he's feeding the pigs, he's looking upon the slop that he's feeding the pigs, and he himself is longing to eat that pig's food. But no one gives him any of it. He has enough to mind to not steal it. There's no one to help him. Because remember, he left his family behind. There's no one, no one giving anything to him. He had turned his back on his family and on his father, and he left them. And this was the consequence and repercussion of his sin. But he comes to his senses and repents. We see his repentance in verses 17 to 20. Twenty-one. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son, in this, in this repentance, comes to the realization that the answer to all his problems, the answer to his dire circumstance, is to return to the father. His father's workers, he realized, eat better than he does. So he decides to go back to his father and humble himself before him. To cast himself at his father's feet. 
He would confess his sin. He would acknowledge his unworthiness to be called a son. He would ask to be made a servant, a hired help in his father's household. So he gets up and he does just that. He heads back home. But even before he gets home, he, as he's returning to his father, his father sees him from afar, from a long distance. And his father, we read here so significantly because the father is representative of God. The father feels compassion for him. He runs to him. He embraces him. And he kisses him. Kisses this prodigal son. What love the father has for this lost son. Cannot miss this point. This is God's kind of love. This is God's great love and compassion for the lost. It's a kind of love that's looking always for the lost to turn back and come back to him. And he, when they do, he runs to them. He feels compassion for them. He embraces them. He receives them and kisses them and brings them back into his house, into his home. Before the father can say anything, the son tells his father all that he had planned to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here in this parable, the prodigal son pictures the sinner who repents. And what we learn here is in his response, in his, this, this passage on repentance, the expressions of a genuine repentance. Sometimes we wonder what does it mean to repent? What is involved in repentance? We can learn just simply from his example. And there are, we might say that we could point out simply four things that are expressions of genuine repentance here. First of all, the son, the prodigal son says, I must turn to God for help. He recognizes that, that the father is where he needs to turn to, to for help. And so in the same way goes for us sinners, that God is the one whom we have, because we've run away from, that's why we're in such trouble. But we need to run back to him. I must turn to God for help. Secondly, I have sinned against God. We may have sinned against other people. We may have done other bad things to, to our neighbors. But first and foremost, there needs to be a recognition that we have sinned against God. We've disobeyed His, His commands and His laws. Thirdly, I am not worthy to be saved. We must have a, a, rec, a humble, rec, we must humble ourselves and recognize that we do not deserve anything from God. God does not have to save us at all. If He chose not to save us, that would be perfectly right and, and just. Because we deserve God's wrath. We deserve the consequences of our sin. But we must recognize that we're not worthy to be saved. God does not save us because we're worthy. If it was dependent upon us being worthy, none of us would be saved. Because we'll never be worthy. You can work the rest of your life to try to be worthy. You can try to cure all sorts of diseases and do all sorts of good works, but it will never cover our sin. We must recognize that we're not worthy. And then fourthly, expression of genuine repentance is that I am willing to serve God in doing whatever He asks of me. There's a, in repentance, there is a turning away from our sin and turning back to God in obedience to, be his, to recognize that we live to serve Him, not ourselves. Therefore, whatever He asks, we will do. 
This is the expressions of genuine repentance. And if you're out there, you're perhaps being drawn by the Lord to, to come to God because of your, because of the consequence. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by sin. Maybe you're wrestling with the effects of the curse of sin upon our world in, in whether in, in any of its possible forms. Perhaps if the Lord's drawing you to turn from your sin and turn to God, may these be some of the expressions of your heart. And the wonderful news is that the Father joyfully welcomes you. Just as we see in this parable, in verses 22 to 24, the rejoicing, the rejoicing uh, in this prodigal, of, uh, of the Father in the return of the prodigal son. 22 24. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. The father treats his son in a manner that his son does not deserve he receives him back as a son, even though he had basically taken away, taken his inheritance, said, Father, you're as good as dead to me, and I'm going to go live my own life. But when he, the son comes back, he welcomes him back. He gives him a robe to wear. He gives him a ring for his hand to symbolize this authority. He gives him sandals to cover his feet. He provides for his son richly and abundantly. He, he then kills a, a fattened calf. To celebrate. And his reason in verse 24 is because this son of mine was dead. It was as if he was dead to him when he left with that inheritance. But he has come to life again. The son he had lost had been found. And so they celebrated and rejoiced. At this point, we might have expected simply another explanation, like verse 7 and verse 7, where Jesus would say, I tell you, there is joy in heaven over one sin who repents. But the story is not over. Jesus' story now turns to the other son. In contrast to the prodigal son, we now turn, Jesus turns our attention to the prideful son in verses 25 to 32. The prideful son. And this son is also guilty of rebellion against his father. We look at this, we find his rebellion, verse 25 to 28. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the sermons and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. The older son, in contrast to the prodigal son, had not left the father's house. He had stayed and he had stayed to work his father's field to, to, try, to, uh, to try to follow his father's instructions. And he was working the field this particular. He came back. And he want, and he, as he comes back from the, in from the field, he, he hears music and he observes dancing. It is a party. And so he asks one of the servants, after being informed by sir what had occurred, 
the older son hears all, all that had happened, that the prodigal son had come back, he doesn't respond in the same way like his father does, with joy and happiness. Instead, he responds with anger. Not only does he have anger, but what's more, he doesn't want to go in and join the party. He is unwilling to be part of his father's household. He will have nothing to do with this celebration with that the father has thrown for this prodigal son. He is now intentionally separating himself from the father and his brother. But once again, the father, full of love and compassion, comes out in the middle of the celebration to plead with his son. His father comes out to seek after this son. And then the son, when seeing his father, reproachfully protests to his father. It's his turn now to be rude. So we look at verse 29 and 30, and the son's, this prideful son's remonstrance. I call it remonstrance, but just to keep the R's. But it's his complaint. He's grumbling. Why he's angry. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son complains that he had been serving the father for so many years. He's followed all his commands. But yet never has the father given even a young goat so that he might celebrate with his, with his friends. And then he complains, he knows the contempt. Now this son of yours, he says, he say, now my brother, he said, no, this son of yours has come. And what's more, he's wasted your wealth on prostitutes. And then you killed the fattened calf for him. All the blame is upon the father. In short, he's like a child that's crying, it's not fair, you're not being fair to me. But ironically, what the prodigal son was gladly willing to be. Remember what he was willing to be? One of his father's servants. The older son is now complaining about, I've been serving you all this time. What's more, because of his prideful anger, it is the older son who is now on the outside. He's not even going in. But it's the prodigal son who has humbly repented is on the inside. See, this prideful son's complaint is all wrong. And that he thinks it's about fairness. But what he's really complaining about is the father's, his father's generosity. It's the father's undeserved favor that he's upset about. His father has given whatever he wants to his son. It belongs to the father. He can give it to his son if he wills. He can give it to any stranger on the street if he wills. And so he, but he desires to give it to this prodigal son, this fattened calf. And yet the prideful son complains. He's grumbling. How can the father give such a celebration for this worthless, wasteful, rebellious, immoral son? His father answers. 
his father's reply, or really is a, a gentle rebuke to his son in verses 31 to 32. And these are the last two verses of this parable. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he's begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. The father gently rebukes the son. He calls him son, child, compassion the father has. He reminds his son that his standing has not changed with the return of the prodigal son. He's really accused God, his father of being not fair, but the father is fair. You've always been with me, yes, and all that is mine is yours. But then he explains that he had to celebrate. He had to rejoice. Why? Because this brother of yours, notice the terminology. He reminds this, prodigal, this prideful son that this prodigal son this <laughs> is this brother of yours. It's your brother. He was lost and now has been found. And that is a reason for rejoice. He was dead, but now he's alive to us again. And the parable ends with this. But the implication is that the father is inviting the prideful son to come back to the house as well and celebrate and rejoice with the father over the return and the finding of this lost prodigal son. The question is, what will the elder son do? How will he respond? Jesus is pointing his finger directly at the religious leaders. He's saying, this is you. They are the older son. They are on the outside looking in while Jesus receives and eats with sinners. Because God's desire and delight is in the repentance of sinners. And that's why he sent his son. But even in, and even in telling this parable, Jesus is inviting them, these, ta- these Pharisees and scribes, to come back in, to repent and believe. While the parable of the lost son conveys the basic same truth as the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, it also conveys two more pointed truths that one ought not to miss. Truth number one, additional truth number one, that this is a parable not of one lost son, but of two lost sons. It's the lost, the prodigal son and the lost prideful son. Both are in rebellion against the Father. Both are at times on the outside. Both at, to- at, 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 a mo- at this moment need to repent. 
And what it does, what this parable does, it reminds us, you know, the, the readers, that there is none righteous, not even one. That all of us, no matter what our background, no matter what our exposure to the things of God, whether we've grown up in the church and heard it all, or whether, and we've never really left the church, we've been, you know, outwardly faithful to, to follow all the rules and regulations of, of church life, or whether we've, um, whether we've come to Jesus as an adult, Late, much later in life, or whether we're somewhere in the middle, we, we kind of knew Jesus as the, in our younger days, but we have walked away from God, uh, walked away from God uh, a while back. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, we all need to return back to God. We all need to repent. We all need to recognize that we're sick and need a physician. We all need the great physician of our souls, we need Jesus Christ, His completed work on the cross for our sins. And we all need to humbly repent and believe in Him for our salvation. That's truth number one. All of us need to repent. Truth number two, additional truth number two, is that this parable teaches us about the love of God. You really can't miss it. The one who's doing the seeking in all three parables, really, whether it's the shepherd, whether it's the woman, or whether it's the father. A really picture of God seeking and saving the lost. All throughout, particularly this last, the last parable, we've seen the patience, compassion, grace, and faithfulness of our God. He seeks and saves the lost. He's like the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. He's like the woman who seeks the lost coin. He's like the father who seeks his lost sons. We gather from this parable that God desires and delights to seek the lost. So then let those who are faithful sons and daughters of God desire and delight in the same. As we read in our call to worship, and really what is the main verse, the key verse of the Gospel of Luke is Luke 19, verse 10. In the context of the salvation of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' mission when He came to earth, all that He did, whether it was to come to proclaim the Gospel of how one might enter the kingdom of God, whether it was the heading to the die on the cross for the sins of the world, it was for the purpose of this, of this, of this cause to seek and to save that which was lost. And all of us, everyone, every man, woman, and child, we are the lost for whom the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came to seek and to save. That's why He came. And because of He came, God, does, God delights and desires to see people respond to His Son by repenting and believing in Him. Let me leave you with three questions that you might reflect upon. Question number one, 
Which son are you? Which son are you? Are you the prodigal son? Or are you like the prideful son? Which one are you more like? Maybe a little bit both, but which one are you like? Think about that. Which sin have you been caught? Are you caught up in just living a life of licentiousness and doing whatever you want? Or are you more like the legalistic son? Outwardly doing all the right things, but yet doing it really because he thinks that that's what he, that's what he can do to gain treats or rewards from his father. In either case, have, the question really is, have you repented from your sin? Have you repented? Second question, do you share in God's delight and desire to save sinners? Is it your joy to see sinners come to saving knowledge of Christ? Is it your, does that make, does that make, is that you, what makes you excited and happy? What gives you great reason to celebrate? And if it is something that makes you happy, then of course it's something that you desire. You'll want to pursue it. And thirdly then, really, an application question. If so, how does this show in your life? How does the desire and delight in seeing sinners repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, how does that show in your life? Does it show in us rejoicing when sinners come to the Lord? Or do we, or do we begrudge other believers who have come to know Christ? Are we quick to, to criticize, oh, that person is really not genuinely saved? I read even this week about a prosperity gospel preacher whom just not too long ago everybody was criticizing because he was like the next generation of prosperity gospel preachers. And it seems like this past week he had preached a message where he came to realize that he had been preaching the wrong message, the wrong gospel. That he came to realize he needed to repent of sin and that the prosperity gospel, it seems like he was, uh, just was recognizing that was wrong. And yet there are some who are going to be quick to say, oh no, he was, he's just faking it. But if those who delight and desire to see sinners come to repentance, we should hope to the best, believe the best, and, and pray for that man. Then it ought definitely desire and delight in seeing sinners come to repentance should cause us to be men and women who go out and seek the save and save the lost, just like our Savior did. I know it's difficult in this day of sheltering place and social distancing. But I even in um, in uh, in some of my in my our Wednesday prayer fellowship, I've been just hearing testimonies of of our different m- members of our church just trying to reach out to people in different ways with the gospel. I'm so thankful for that. Always a mindfulness. We may not always be successful in like leading a person to the Lord, but I just appreciate how many ways we're just all thinking about it and praying about it and doing taking little steps in in sharing and sowing the seed of the gospel in others' lives. Because so, we want to share in the delight that God has when one sinner comes to repentance. And we do this all in praise of God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. And we pray that we would Learn to be like you, to desire and delight in the repentance of sinners. Help us to follow after the example of Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the lost. 
And Lord, may you guard us from, uh, <clears throat> from ever being, um, being unfaithful to share the good news. As those who have been reconciled to you, help us to be faithful to be ambassadors who tell others about Christ, who share, with, who share the hope that we have in Jesus, and that you would use us to draw others to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus. And we praise you. And we pray that you would cause your church to grow even through the sheltered place. Make us even, each of us, more effective witnesses for Jesus Christ and open doors for the gospel, Lord, in this world that desperately needs it. Help us to be faithful until you bring us together or until you bring us home. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.